This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, the podcast of Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Liam Proud, a columnist in London. This week, we'll be talking about climate change and shareholder votes at big energy companies like BP. But first, the big news of the week. Carmaker Fiat Chrysler, controlled by the Italian Agnelli family, on Monday submitted a merger proposal to its French state-owned rival Renault, which is itself locked in an uneasy partnership with Japan's Nissan. Rob Cox hosted this chat, where Lisa Juca and I play carmaker matchmaker and weigh up what all this means for the auto industry. All right, one of the biggest deals in the auto industry has has blown up this week, and we're in, the, in the next week or so, we're going to have a, a really clear indication of where it's going. That is, of course, Fiat Chrysler uh, and its proposal for a 50-50 merger with Renault. Uh, Liam Proud, you are here in London. You've been covering this story. I've got Lisa, you're in Milan. Of course, you've been covering the story in, all weekend last weekend, um, and I along with you. I mean, guys, what... It, what, uh, let's just talk about the big picture. I mean, we, we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, but this is this is really the first big real M&A deal that we've seen in Autoland in in really a decade, right, Liam? I mean, how? I mean, what do you think the the repercussions of this will be? Yeah, I think I think it's huge. You know, for for well over you know two or three years now. I mean, you, you used to know Sergio Marchione, the you know the guy who was sort of imagining a lot of this stuff several years ago is there's been an expectation that automakers were going to have to merge and the kind of the big picture here is that you know the industry as a whole is is, is a very low margin industry has been, been a very low margin industry for years now um, and the question is given that can they afford can they afford all these really expensive investments in things like electric vehicles and autonomous driving and all these emissions penalties they're going to have to pay can they afford all that unless they get together and get some synergy some cost savings and the big they're big ones here i mean lisa what what you calculated the net present value uh, to shareholders today of the cost savings that were estimated by uh, the fiat proposal. What did they come to? Yeah, I mean, it could be um, over 30 billion euros. Uh, I mean, if if we just, you know, make a sort of, you know, capitalize and tax and take out, you know, the integration costs, which we know will be up to 4 billion. So it's it's a really um, chunky promise, if you want, uh, for investors that rests on the expectation mostly of reducing uh, the R&D and CapEx spending. And let's put that into context. 30 billion euros is basically these before the, the deal was announced, their their market cap was something like uh, 33 billion yeah, euros. It's so it's basically saying you can you can recreate uh, profit equal to that which we're already we've already got by just cutting costs. Now Liam Th- that is the kind of thing that, that, as you were saying, other auto companies are going to go, well, man, they're going to do their calculations. And one of the stories that you had written about earlier in the year was um, how Fiat should be, Fiat Chrysler should be looking at PSA, Peugeot, uh, Citroën in, in France. They equally would have been able to get something like that. Yeah, it would, have, it would have been a similar magnitude. I mean, it's always hard because it depends on the, you know, the individual models and where they're made and what the overlap is. But it would have been a similar kind of order of magnitude, you know, 
three, four, five, six billion uh, cost savings a year, somewhere like that. Which are then equal to the 30 billion. Exactly. So once you, you know, that's about. an annual run rate. And then once you work out the value of that in per- per- perpetuity. Um, the, the, the big question now is what does Peugeot do? Because, you know, they had this uh, Italian-American kind of wedding set up with, with Fiat Chrysler, where they thought that that was going to be the, the logical deal and their investors thought that was going to be the logical deal. There's probably some M&A premium in both of the share prices because of that. Um, and now he's sort of, you know, Carlos Tavares, the Peugeot CEO, he's kind of run out of options. Of course, he, he remember, he's the guy who bought Opel from General Motors, the European, yeah. the sort of loss-making European arm, and really quickly turned it around. So he was a little bit like this mini Marchione or, you know, um, you know the, the, the pred- uh, successor to the Carlos Ghosn. Yeah, Le Cos Killer. Uh, Le Cos Killer. And uh, so, I mean, why wouldn't General Motors now go, hey, well, look what you did with that last division we gave you. Why don't you uh, yeah. go at it with the whole thing? It's a good question. But, I mean, the, the, the General Motors question, you know, that's a... That's, that's, that's an old idea, right, the PSA, GM thing. But I think the, the issue with it now is if you look at the market value of the two companies, it's really hard to come up with a deal that would leave Tabarez, the Peugeot CEO, in control because GM is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to have him paying a load of cash. Does he wanna, do you want to blow all your cash, lever up at this point in the cycle when you've got a load of investment needs? It's hard. I mean, you can imagine a more kind of piecemeal thing. He could say, you know, Mary Barrett, this is the GM CEO, she's getting a load of flack from Trump for trying to close down plants and stuff. You know, maybe he goes along and says, I, I want to get into the US, maybe I can use some of your spare capacity. He'd get a ton of subsidies, probably get a nice handshake from Donald Trump, it'd be very nice. Those are, those are robust handshakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I'd, I'd imagine Tavares has quite robust handshakes as well. But, <laughs> but, so, so, but one of the, the, the real key questions here is, so you mentioned Peugeot. They've got, I think it's 10 or 15 percent. It's held by the French government. Of course, Renault, 15 percent held by the French government. Um, you know, Lisa, I mean, how do you view the, the, the fiat proposals, attempts, to mollify or pacify or even please um, the constituents, well, particularly uh, the um, the French government. So these this, um, attempts are inevitable if you want, because uh, um, if uh, if Fiat uh, Chrysler was to talk about uh, taking out capacity and with that jobs, uh, that would mean taking out jobs in Europe, probably France and Italy, and that would. Uh, you know, massively irritate one shareholders of Renault, but also um, the Italian government, which we know is is quite a nationalist one um, at the moment. At the same time, um, so the, the, basically the proposal says that there won't be any job cuts, but you know, maybe there is a bit of a question mark, you know, further down the line, whether that is is indeed achievable. Because we know, for instance, that several Italian plants of FCAs are not working at full capacity. And, you know, it's unclear how exactly you're going to solve that issue with that merger. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, just looking at the proposal, um, you know, it is it is nicely positioned to do a couple of things for the French government. Now, the French government has 15% of, of Renault, right? Is that, that yeah. Liam? Yeah. So that, now that's, that's not, in the new arrangement, should you do a 50-50 split, um, you're going to have them down to 7.5%. And then you'll still have a, you know, a shareholder of reference, as they call it, which is the Agnelli family's XOR, with around 14, 15% of the company. So you now have reduced the, the role of the state, if you will, in the new government, in the new, in in the new company and in the governance, because it's not also obvious that they will have a seat at the table, or rather, I should say, a, a, 
board. And, and, and crucially, they would lose their double voting rights. I mean, this, this is one of the issues with, you know, mergers in, in Autoland is you look at all these companies, they've all got big family reference shells, you know, the Ford family and VW, you've got the Porsche PS family, you've got the, you know, the Agnelli's, you've got, you know, the French state, and everyone's got these super voting shares, which makes it hard to put these capital structures together. Now, the solution here has just been... You reset it. We won't do you it. You reset it. And the other thing is, it, and the other reason, so it's, it also puts Nissan into a voting position. Now, their, their stake in, uh, in, Puj, in Renault, yeah. they can't vote because Renault is effectively has 43% controls and controls. So now by going to a new, new, a new governance where you're in the Netherlands rather than a French uh, company, that now restores the voting power for Nissan. So, I mean, so we've, we talked about how it will help the French. The French government will, will, well, let's put it this way. Let's keep going with the French question because if you dilute the French down to 7.5%, um, now you could say, well, if you're the French government, that's no good. But, but I think this is an, a graceful exit in some ways from the position they've had with Renault. I mean, it, it, we go back to 2015 when Emmanuel Macron, who was the, the economy minister at the time, did this um, this sort of hedge fund-like, yeah. you know, activist move. It was almost he, a raid. Yeah. It was a raid where he basically, they bought stocks so they could juice up their voting rights to kind of stymie Nissan. This was, um, this is the thing, this is actually the real sore point between Nissan and Renault. Yeah. Carlos Ghosn hated it. The Japanese hated it. They haven't forgotten it. They even did extract, extract some revenge, right? Because they had um, they reduced Renault's ability to re- appoint board. Yeah, yeah. There was Japan. a there was a kind of you know there was a, there was an agreement after this, which you know meant that Renault couldn't meddle in right. Nissan's government. But uh, yeah, I agree. That was that that was an example, I think, of exactly how ready the French government was to meddle in Renault's affairs. And now it's is interesting. The the interesting question is, given that track record. You know why do they seem to be supporting this deal? And 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 I think the 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 answer is well, you know, look, you've got two options: that the, you try and pursue relationships with Nissan, this kind of clunky alliance which is not going very well. Doesn't seem like the Japanese want to do a merger, or you can create this kind of stronger European champion with the you know Italian-based group Fiat Chrysler. You get a lot of U.S. exposure. Arguably, you leave Renault as part of a bigger, more valuable more secure company and they they're already up i mean look at they've already gotten a, a, a few you know billion dollars of market cap have gone up and this is before they've even agreed a deal yeah um then then, then the next so assume that so the, that lets the french government off the hook then the next one is nissan you mentioned nissan there's five billion dollars of sort of pooled synergies between nissan renault and mitsubishi now Lisa, what has uh, John Elkan, the chairman of, of Fiat, what, what kind of, what, what is your sense of what he'd like to do with Nissan long term? So his, um, my sense of his vision is that uh, FCA clearly has to solve its Asian problem, if we want to call it like that. I mean, Fiat crisis is, you know, strong in North America. I mean, it derives uh, the vast majority of its EBITDA value from North America. Um, it's um, struggling in Europe, but it's totally non-existent in, in Asia. I mean, it's really a market they fail to conquer, particularly in China. So in a way, teaming up with Renault, and this is why I kind of prefer the, the, the sort of Renault tie-up to the proposed P- PSA one, um, the teaming up with Renault gives the option potentially further down the line to to do something more with Nissan. And, and that, you know, would mean that you, you have a global player which is strong, in all three regions, America, Europe, and Asia. You know, that must be appealing um, for, for the Agnelli's. 
Yeah, and I think it's really appealing for Nissan, the whole thing. I mean, as, as I, we wrote, our colleague Jeff Goldfarb wrote out of, out of Asia yesterday, um, you know, Nissan gets a billion more of synergies for the alliance without lifting a finger. That's like, whoop, done deal. And their stake in Renault will be more valuable, you'd think. But, but, but it's, it's so interesting then that, you know, the noises coming out of Japan seem to be that they're not that keen on the deal. And you have to ask yourselves, why is that? Why would the current management not be keen on that deal, even though it's, it does seem like a financial no-brainer? And I think the answer is they're worried about losing some kind of sway in the overall well, alliance. The, the, the other guy on the other side of the table has got more power and yeah. more leverage and that they don't like that. They've, you know, and I think, but that, that is, there's no way that that wins out over all of the, uh, the financial the governance yeah. and other, I mean, I just, if it did, it would be bonkers to see if Saikawa, the, the chairman or CEO of, um, of, of Nissan were to somehow uh, argue against doing. I, I think their back, their their back is against the wall in this one. You think? I mean, we've written that you know they would they they would pick up an, an activist. I think if they try, really try to do this. I mean, it is it, it's it's so obviously in shareholders' interests. But you know, there's a there's a, there's an interesting kind of power struggle going on there. So what? How is this being viewed in Italy? I mean, you know, the 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 key driver here is um, is uh, is John Elkan. Uh, this is you know who was the acolyte if you will, for many years with Sergio Marchione, who's, who really put this forward in 2015 with his Confessions of a Capital Junkie um, manifesto. I mean, he really has grabbed it and run with it and uh, seems to have really found himself as the sort of leader of, the, of this whole consolidation. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, in, a, in a strange way, the, the sad loss of Sergio Marchione has probably facilitated, if you want, the deal, because, I mean, he was a tough negotiator. He was also a strong presence. It would have been very difficult to, to do a merger where, you know, he, he didn't get, you know, a key role. So, again, the fact that he's no longer there maybe has, you know, uh, helped Elkan, you know, to, to push these discussions through um, faster. I mean, in terms of your question, you know, how is this viewed initially? I think, you know, the, the, the key topic here is jobs. Um, FCA is still a larger employer. I mean, although not uh, as large as it used to be, there are several uh, factories operating in Italy. So, and, you know, the, the concern is job losses because this is a country with high unemployment and with a stagnant economy. Um, but as I said before, the capacity, I mean, the, the productivity of these plants, I mean, it's, it's uh, not, uh, um, you know, the same everywhere. So, so there's a question mark on whether, you know, it can be sustained. In, in, over the long term, because it will take time. I mean, these this synergies, the promised synergies are big, but it will take time for those to filter through. You know, we're talking six years uh, from the statement. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've still got to get Renault uh, to board to approve this thing. And I know, Liam, you've been working on a story that looks at um, how arbitrageurs in the markets think that actually the, that Renault shareholders are getting shafted a bit and that, that the, a little bit more money should come their way. Um, I don't, I'm not sure they've got any leverage to blow this thing up. I'm not sure the Nissan does. Seems like the French government's on side. The Italians seem on side. Shareholders have blessed it. My guess is this thing will be uh, th this thing will sail through, but uh, we'll know more next week. Now on to our second topic of the week. George Hay and I sat down in London to talk about BP, other fossil fuel companies, and what their shareholders are getting them to do or not do about climate change. 
So I'm here with George Hay, who's been um, writing about some shareholder meetings um, at some big energy companies. So, so last week we had BP's annual shareholder meeting, um, and there were two resolutions before the big uh, oil and gas companies' investors. Um, so, so what happened last week? Yeah, so the um, two resolutions were both to do with the Paris Climate Accord goals, which is to kind of restrict global warming to appreciably lower than 2 um, degrees C. Um, by 2050. And um, so the first one was just to make BP disclose more about how um, hitting those targets would affect its balance sheet. And this is the um, one that the, the company supported, right? That, and yeah, so that, that, was, that was proposed by uh, 340 institutional uh, investors, in this thing called Climate Action 100 plus. And um, the, uh, and yes, as you say, the, the, the company uh, supported it. The uh, second one was a slightly tougher one um, proposed by these um, uh, kind of mainstay of the um, get tough approach to corporate activism on this area called these guys called follow this right. and what they wanted to happen was for BP to set some really solid targets on this is how much you're going to cut yeah. your carbon emissions by this date. I see. So first one is can you give us some more information about how you think about the issue, what yeah. are your planning assumptions and the second one is tell us what you're actually going to do and yeah. how you're going to cut. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so um, there's a quite kind of binary outcome. Um, the first of the, 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 the Climate Action 100 plus one on disclosure was passed 99.1%, um, hardly anyone against. Uh, the follow this one um, was kind of pretty much the opposite. 91.7% um, of investors voted against it. So, this, so the investors basically went along with what the company advised them to do. Now, in, in a sense, I guess it depends which lens you look at it through, but in a sense, this is progress, right? Especially if you compare it to what, you know, the big US rival Exxon has been doing. Yeah, well, so Exxon, um, I mean, you can definitely say it was progress because Exxon didn't even want a vote on this um, uh, issue. I mean, they, they, were, they kind of specifically lobbied the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission to um, prevent them having to have a vote on right. uh, on set targets being uh, being required. Whereas um, BP allowed the vote. BP allowed the vote, yeah. but um, but in any case, the investors voted it down. Um, so I, I suppose you could say that's that's progress. Um, but it's it's really just a question of um, how uh, rigorous and problematic it is for BP to uh, to have to do this now. And you can pretty much guess that the fact that the management supported it implies that it's not too painful. Yeah, um, turkeys tend not to vote for Christmas. Well, exactly. But I, I suppose, um, that, you know, it, it's quite a kind of grey area um, in terms of, I mean, you can ask, if, if you're required to disclose stuff, um, you know, it, it really depends on how, um, how high you set the bar. Um, if they actually have to go into really, really deep, granular detail about, how much carbon they're, they're they're assuming they will be allowed to emit, and the effect that that's going to have on their various uh, capex um, uh, policies for the next ten twenty years, then that will really be quite intrusive and quite quite well, certainly useful for investors, but yeah. also quite um, potentially problematic for the company. But um, the fact again, the fact the company was okay and is okay doing this suggests that it might be somewhat. Right. more kind of low fat than that. And, and, and there is another European peer that's gone, I guess you could call it slightly a step further. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, 
and I mean that's Shell. I mean Shell is often seen as the kind of goody two shoes of the. Uh, I mean. Of of the oil majors um, in in this the era. relative good issues. It, it definitely has to be seen in relative terms, but um, the the extent to which that is definitely the case uh, in this scenario is that uh, uh, Shell um, factors in uh, what basically what are called scope three emissions. So it's not just the emissions they come out with in um, in getting the oil oil out of the ground and kind of all their processes. They're also thinking about the emissions that will be generated when um, this stuff is used by its end consumer, and these right. these things are called scope three emissions. Now BP's now I mean the the follow this um, resolution that was decisively rejected that included a uh, request to um, factor in these scope right. three emissions, and BP as a result of the vote doesn't have to do it. So, um, I mean, I suppose from BP's perspective, you could argue they allowed the vote to. It's better they're doing better than Exxon because they allowed this kind of vote to happen, but um, they don't actually have to do it. Whereas Shell has already gone that extra step to actually do yeah. it. And it set these targets for, you know, reducing the intensity of its carbon emissions. They call it the net carbon footprint, right? Yeah. And that, you know, is supposedly in line with, with, with in some vague sense, with the Paris goals. Yeah. But I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's another sense in which all of this is a bit besides the point, because... I mean, the the even the toughest ones, Shell, right? They've they're, they're using what we call a, a, a relative target. It's a kind of it's about the intensity of energy. Could you explain that yeah. a bit? Well, so it's just basically the amount of um, uh, carbon you're. They're talking about the relative amount of carbon they emit in in their processes, um, and the point is, you can have a target to cut that from say seventy to fifty percent um, in terms of your carbon intensity, but that might not be the same thing as actually reducing your overall absolute levels of carbon right. because it, carbon intensity, in a way, is a function of your production. So if Shell really ramp up their production, um, you can argue they, they, they won't, but if they really, really ramp up their production um, and also commit to a lower carbon intensity, then the net amount of carbon that they emit may still be higher. Right, um, right. So it's, it's, I mean, probably the way that they would think about it is that uh, the extent to which they're decreasing their carbon intensity is not, it will still mean that in absolute terms yeah. it will probably go down. But that's, but, not, but what that, that's yeah. not what their actual target is. So it's a bit, it's, a, it, it's, it's slightly, it's not quite as green as, it's a, it's a paler shade of green than, <laughs> than they might want to kind of uh, outline. And because, of course, what we care about at the end of the day in terms of whether or not the planet cooks is the actual amount of emissions going into the atmosphere. Whereas Absolutely. You, yeah, yeah. You, could, you could halve the intensity of your pro production, but if you doubled production, the same amount of stuff would be going into the atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. So re reasons to be cheerful, but probably bigger reasons to be sceptical that these guys take it seriously then. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you've got to remember that um, this is all taking place against the backdrop of the oil majors and to a certain extent um, their investors being in a quite difficult position because um, the way they would look at it is to say, um, here we are in almost at 2020 and you know we've got these targets that, are, that not only us, not, not, it's, not, it's not just that we have to hit them, but the planet and politicians yeah. have to decide to get serious about the Paris climate goals. Yeah. And, um, 
at the moment, if you look at the uh, International Energy Agency's projections, we're, we're nowhere near hitting right. even, even the two degrees C uh, target. If we, if we don't really do anything more beyond what, than what we're doing at the moment, we'll be 2.7 by the end of the century, in which case we'll probably be pretty looking pretty pretty hot <laughs> yeah um so so the problem is like um uh if you're running a business or if you're investing in a business you kind of don't want to go a lot faster than the government's already going right because if you show too much leadership then you might that might penalize you relative to your peers yeah so there's a there's a strong disincentive to show too much leadership here but then um, you've got to balance that against your own. Um, you, 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 you're having an increasing number of your investors who are really into ESG stuff, environmental focused and responsible investing, right. um, and they're prodding you in the back to make sure that you're not going too slowly. So it's a strange kind of um, almost yeah. like three-legged race <laughs> stroke dance between your uh, between the investors right. and the companies to be to kind of. Project that you are definitely taking this stuff seriously, but in actual terms, not taking it so seriously that it screws up your business. Because a lot of these investors are, they really like the fact they get a 6% dividend yield from BP and Shell. They, you know, Shell is, I think, the, the, the biggest single absolute dividend player, payer in the wow. FTSE. So, like, if you're, um, if you're Shell, um, you, you're really incentivized to, you know, keep that level of yeah. shareholder payment out. And if you're an investor, you're even more incentivized yeah. to, to make sure that doesn't just suddenly go to zero. Um, and most of that dividend at the moment is being funded by cash flow generated by fossil fuel. Yeah, the fundamental, the fundamental thing to remember about Shell is that even though they are kind of probably ahead of the pack on um, uh, taking climate change seriously, um, they... They have a target of $25 billion um, of CapEx every year. Um, at most, $2 billion of that will be on renewable kind of new technology wow. stuff. Like the, the, the massive majority of it is surprisingly enough to still invest in oil and gas, which is, I say unsurprisingly because that they are, an oil, the gas yeah. they are an oil and gas company. That is what they do. So... Uh, um, that's that's the thing you've always got to remember in on this subject because regardless of how much they um, bang on about green stuff, that's not reflected in the numbers yet. Yeah. So if we want to have this issue taken seriously, probably voters and government governments need to be leading the way then. Absolutely. Great, George. Thanks very much. Thank you, Liam. Thanks to all our guests this week. We'll be handing over to our colleagues in Hong Kong next week. And as always, we're very grateful to Freddie Joyner, Ross Shoulder and Sydney Barbera for producing this podcast. Thank you very much, dear listener, for your ears. You must subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts for The Views Room, Exchange and other Reuters podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com, Reuters.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views. Bye.